You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com. And, of course, I will answer as many as I can. So uh, if you missed the last show, you know, it's right after the Passover holiday. Great story in the last show worth Going back to the last show, as great as this one's going to be, but that story we started with, you don't want to miss that story. That is really an A1 story, and it's personal. We love personal stories. And again, I hope everyone enjoyed the holidays, enjoyed family, enjoyed the children, um, enjoyed the company, wherever you were. Hopefully everything was wonderful and beautiful. Hopefully everybody enjoyed all that crunchy matzah. Um, Not one of my favorite foods, but hopefully it was really was really great. My father-in-law actually joined us for the holidays. It really worked out beautiful. Um, it was even more beautiful that we actually had a an extra house down the block. A neighbor went away because there was, thank God, a lot of noise in the house, a lot of children, and he wasn't ready for all that noise. So whenever he needed, he could take a break down the block. He likes to get up early and pray. I found a friend that drove him back and forth every morning. It was really, really quite wonderful. It's always good to talk about parents, in-laws, have so many generations sitting around the same table, grandparents, great-grandparents, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Just, it's, it's a beautiful thing. The whole, whole idea of Passover is parents are telling children there's a chain, and it goes all the way back. So when great-grandchildren can hear the story from their great-grandparents, hearing from grandparents is great, hearing from parents is super Hearing from grandparents is better, but when you get to go back further generations, it's amazing. And even my own children, it was so interesting to see how they wanted to hear about, you know, when my father-in-law was a teenager, because he grew up with some great rabbis, and they wanted to hear what happened, how did things work, what did this person do, what was he like? It was some really very beautiful conversations. Anyways, this week's story portion is all about Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, and there's a specific set of sacrifices that are brought. And most of them are your run-of-the-mill sacrifices. The high priest brought a bull, and then he also had a goat, and these were slaughtered, and the blood was sprinkled inside the tabernacle or inside the temple by the Holy of Holies, by the Ark. And there was incense that was brought in, and and uh, all kinds of sacrifices. And then there's one unusual sacrifice. It's, there's nothing like it during the rest of the year. And that was called the Sa'ir Azazel. Or the Sa'ir Azazel. That was the goat. No, they took two goats. And the high priest, the Korean Gadol, would make a lottery. And one of those goats would be a sacrifice. He would call out God's name. And the other sacrifice was for the Azazel. What happened? The Kohen Gadol would appoint someone before 
Yom Kippur, this person would take this second goat, he would take it with him, um, the distance is 12 mil. A mil is at 2,000 amas, it's between three and 4,000 feet. So 12 of those, so you figure, I don't know, uh, seven, eight miles away, and he would take this goat to a cliff, he would take this red string, he would tie it on a rock, and he would toss the goat or push the goat over backwards off the cliff, and the the goat would uh, get broken to pieces on the way down the mountain. And if the Jewish people were doing what they were supposed to do, the string, the red string that he had, turned white. The Before this goat was sent out on the mission, the high priest actually um, leaned his hands on the goat, and he... And, and the language of the verse, and this is what I wanted to talk about. The verse says, meaning that this goat is carrying all the sins of the Jewish people. What does that mean? Is it literal? Does it mean that the goat is, that all our sins, everything did, we did wrong, is somehow on this goat? And by throwing this goat off the mountain, so now all our sins are gone, right? We only wish it was so easy, right? Don't you wish? Yeah. Take everything you did wrong, everybody yelled at, and every sin. If you didn't keep the Sabbath, you didn't keep kosher, or you, you slandered somebody, or you cheated, or you stole something at work. Wouldn't it be great? I could take all these sins, bundle them up in a package, take the package, I don't know, fly up in a helicopter, toss everything into the ocean, let it get destroyed, and as it gets destroyed, you are completely clean. Wouldn't that be amazing if there was such a thing? That would be amazing. And therefore, that can't be what it means. Can't be. It can't be so simple that because I did some simple action that I get a free ticket. Can't be so simple. Similar, we have, we've talked about in the past, uh, before people do it on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, um, some people will do it sometime between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, even a few days after Yom Kippur, um, where they take the bread, it's called Tashlich, we take the bread and we throw it in the water and we say we're throwing our sins away. That's it. That's all I got to do to get rid of all my sins, to cleanse myself, it's so easy. Very hard to imagine that life, we, again, we wish that life should be so easy. And I know there's other religions out there that uh, proclaim that, uh, that it's so easy. But it's not so easy. It can't be. If I did something wrong, it's true. God gives me a, an opportunity on Yom Kippur, this amazing opportunity to say I'm sorry and to mean it. And God says, okay, we'll wipe the slate clean. You really are repenting. You're a new person. You're a changed person. You want to be better. I'm willing to wipe the slate. But that's only because you, as an individual, as a person, are praying and actually repenting. But to actually imagine that there's a free ticket can't be. So then what's actually happening? So I think it really goes into what happens with all sacrifices. Like, how does a sacrifice work? Like, we have all these Torah portions we've been learning over the last, uh, I don't know, six weeks. 
talking about sacrifices, that a person does something wrong and he brings a certain sacrifice. Some are called a chatos, and some are called an asham, and some are called an ola. So what's happening? This was interesting. My son actually must have asked a similar question to one of the rabbis here in town, and he gave him this speech. When that animal is sacrificed, and the animal is killed, and we take the blood, and we throw the blood on the altar, and we take the piece of the animal, and we burn it on the altar... When that's all taking place, a person is supposed to feel, you know, it should be my blood that's, that's getting caught in a vessel over here. It should be my blood thrown on the altar. It should be my limbs that are, that are getting burnt. You know why? Because if I sin, that means I'm not listening to God. I'm rebelling against God. God gives me a life. He takes care of me. He feeds me. He clothes me. He, he gives me a house to live in. He does all these great things for me, and I have the audacity to go ahead and sin. I should be incurring a death penalty. So God says, there's a lot of times in our minds, that's the way our minds work, right? I have to get a picture. It's not good enough to tell me I did something wrong. I, I need it to be, uh, to be uh, tangible is probably a good word. I need to be able to recognize that I really did something wrong and I really deserve a punishment. But so by bringing a sacrifice, and I'm putting myself in place of the sacrifice, by doing all that, I create um, within me um, that this should be me. That will help me repent. That will help me recognize I did something wrong. That will make it real. And then I can truly repent. So I think the same thing is happening with this goat. When we throw this goat off the mountain, everybody knew what was happening. As a matter of fact, the Mishnah blames it on the Babylonians. The Talmud says it was really the people from Alexandria, but they didn't like the Babylonians. So they called the Babylonians, whoever it is. It says they had to build a special ramp from the Temple Mount outside of the Temple to get the... The, this goat on its way because these people would come and start tugging it says his hair, it's not clear who's hair either the goat's hair or the guy or the guy's beard who's bringing out the goat and they would start uh, pressuring and saying you know, come on, move, faster, faster faster, get out there, get our sins uh, away from here, like they all knew what was going on but they had to build him a ramp where he couldn't get out right, so, so he gets out there, everybody knew that this goat was being thrown off a cliff and that it was supposed to break into pieces. So everyone's supposed to be thinking, my sins are on that goat. My sins are not on that goat. Well, what do my sins have to do with a goat? Goat didn't do anything wrong. No, that animal is my sacrifice. And I'm the one that should be tossed off the cliff. And I'm the one that should be broken into a million pieces, or however many pieces are broken into. But God is kind. He's not killing me right now. He's letting me live, and he's giving me a new opportunity. So when I can put that picture in my mind of what I am guilty of, that's how this sacrifice, I believe, is working. I think that's a pretty clear, simple um, explanation of what God wants us to do. You know, it's what we call the power of imagination, right? The reason why people love stories because when I tell over a story in class, when I tell over a story to you, you put yourself into that story. When people get emotional from stories, 
It's because they have the ability to put themselves in the story. And when you put yourself in the story, it becomes real. How do I put myself in the story? Sometimes we need something real to hold on to. Throwing this goat off the cliff. Throwing this bread in the water. Um, bringing a sacrifice. Okay. So continuing, this word azazel is a very fascinating word. Um, it comes from two words. It comes from the word az, or oiz, which means strength. And azal means to go. So meaning, if you want to know how to fight your evil inclination, you have to use strength and force the evil inclination out your front door. For example, if you could imagine, a guy knocks on a wealthy guy's door, and and uh, the wealthy man opens it up, and the, and the guy comes in, he wants to show him some business deal or something, and the wealthy man says, I'm not interested. You've been here 10 times already. Just get out. And the guy, like all the cartoons, he sticks his foot in the door. And the wealthy man tries to close the door, and his foot's there, and he's arguing with him. And, he, and this uh, guy trying to sell something or trying to uh, get him to invest in his business, and he's arguing. And finally, the wealthy man, the only way to get rid of him is he has to pick him up and throw him down the stairs. Now, I'm not suggesting that if somebody comes to you with a business deal, that you, uh, this is how you deal with a person. I'm not suggesting that at all. But you can all imagine if there's a real nudnik, that's a good Jewish word, if there's a real nudnik, there's this person that is just harassing you and, and not letting go, sometimes the way to get rid of such a person is to toss them out. You gotta physically pick them up, use your strength, and say, go. And that, Itzla says, is how we deal with the evil inclination. Because the evil inclination is a real nudnik. He comes, he comes again, he harasses again. He doesn't give up. Why should he give up? You're still alive. He's still got a job. It's not going away because the first time you said get lost. He could do this a hundred times. So the only way to get rid of your evil inclination sometimes is with this az, with this oiz, with this strength. So get out of here. You got to use your strength. That's the azazah. We have to use our strength, our power, our feelings to tell the evil inclination, we are not doing this. I'm not being nice to you. I'm not inviting you in. I'm not letting you hang out. You gotta move on. Done. Talking about sacrifices, there's, an, there's another interesting um, Torah commandment in this week's portion, and it's called Shrutechutz. Shrutechutz means like this. Let's say I take my sheep and I say, Sheep, I am going to bring you to the temple and I will bring you up as an Ola sacrifice. And then I decide, you know what? Schlep all the way to the temple. It's going to take me three or four days to get there. The sheep and this and the family. You know what? Let me just build an altar in my backyard. And I'll bring it in my backyard. God is everywhere. It's not like God is only in the temple. I can talk to God wherever I want. So why don't I just bring my sacrifice in my backyard? I'll get what I need. God gets what he needs. Everything is good. I understand the purpose of a sacrifice. I understand it's me, and, and uh, it'll help me repent. But till I get up to the temple, why do I do the temple? I'll do it right here. So we actually, um, a couple of years ago, had a great guy from Israel um, who 
he had a book explaining this concept of why people, I think it was called God versus Gods or something. I think his name is Ruvain, not remembering his last name offhand. I see him on LinkedIn all the time. My son actually met him in Israel selling his book. And he says, oh, my, my, my father has your book. I think he interviewed you. So um, anyways, um, so he explained um, on that show this concept of why it was so prevalent, why it was so desired. It was one of those few things. There's the Jewish people come into land of Israel and, and they're keeping all the Torah and all the mitzvahs. But, but this idea of a private altar in the backyard, they couldn't get rid of. And it wasn't because they were being bad. They, they wanted this holiness. They wanted this connection. They wanted to all bring their own personal sacrifice. Very, very normal, at least um, through the first temple. So the Torah says there's this concept called shrute chutz. You cannot bring a once the temple is built. Those are, this again is there were there were points in time. As in the desert, you have the tabernacle, no private altar. Then we go into the land of Israel for 14 years. We're fighting. We're conquering. Then you can have a private altar. Then they set up in a place called Shiloh. They set up the tabernacle. Now for the next 365 years. No private sacrifices in your backyard. Then the, the Mishkan Shiloh, the tabernacle in Shiloh was destroyed. And then there was a window, I think it was like 56 years. There was a window of time where, again, they could bring private sacrifices. Then um, Solomon, Shlomelech, builds the temple. Once the temple is built, no more private sacrifices. End of story. So this verse in the Torah, this mitzvah, this command that says you cannot bring a sacrifice outside of the temple, it was to combat this thought process of uh, why can't I serve God in my backyard? God is everywhere. Almost like Pharaoh says to Moses uh, after the plague of the wild animals. He says, ah, I see God is in, is in Egypt also. God's in Egypt also. Um, why do I need to let you guys go into the desert to bring sacrifices to God, you do it uh, right right in your front yard, right in your backyard. God is everywhere, which is a, an interesting thought and true as far as God being everywhere. But as far as the rules and regulations, no. God specifically wants sacrifices brought in the temple. Now, we talked about it in the past. Um, well, at least one of the reasons, at least one of those reasons is that when a person would come to the tabernacle, it, of course God is everywhere, but God's presence, you felt, I don't want to say you could see, but you felt God's presence. You came to the temple and the priests are all dressed in white and the high priest in his special clothing and and everything was holy and everything was special and you had all these great people and holy people and there was such an amazing, powerful, spiritual awakening when you showed up in the temple that that was part of the lesson. You couldn't get that feeling. You might think you could get that feeling in your backyard, but you can't get that feeling in your backyard when you bring a private sacrifice. You may feel good, but not the full, powerful feeling. So you tell me, at least get something? It's not true. Now, sometimes we think something is better than nothing. It's not true. Because this something will, will stop you from getting the full, powerful, spiritual feeling if you go up to the temple. So better I let you do nothing in your backyard. So once in a while you go to the temple and get 
high concentration than being satisfied with a little bit, right? We shouldn't be satisfied with a little bit. We got to go for broke. We got to get everything. It always reminds me, there's so many people that I run into that they tell me all the time that, oh, Rabbi, I have a good heart. I am a Jew at heart. I, my heart tells me how to serve God. Your heart tells you how to serve God? You are clueless. You don't know anything. You don't know how to serve God. What did you ever study from God? When did you ever actually read through the Torah that you know how God wants to be served? When you say you're a Jew at heart, you're saying, I want to live life my way, and uh, whatever works for me works for me, and God will have to accept. That, at least, if you tell me that, I say, now you're being an honest person. But to say you know how to serve God, that's ridiculous, which reminds me of an amazing story. Um, there was a, a lieutenant, Jewish, his name was Lieutenant Shmuel Kahan. He actually served in the Navy, actually served on submarines. He, um, he was the highest officer on a, on a submarine. Um, he was very involved with, the, believe it or not, with the Cuban, well, pre the Cuban Missile Crisis. He were, was in the Army at that time. So one time when he was, uh, I guess he was based in Cuba, um, so one time the commander of the naval base came over to the Shmuel Kahan and said to him, Lieutenant, you're here to serve your country, right? Oh, yes, yes, sir. Well, um, we have a little bit of a problem over here. Um, we do not have a chaplain to run the high holiday services. I need you to run the high holiday services. So Lieutenant said, Commander, it's true, I am a rabbi. It's true, I know how to run the high holiday services. But I must tell you, when I joined the army, one of the things I said to myself is, I'm joining the army as I'm going to become an officer. I am not here in the army. I'm as a rabbi. Rabbis outside the army, inside the army, I do the army stuff. So the commander said, I need you to serve these people. All your fellow Jews are clueless. You're the only one here on the base that can run, that can run the show properly. So I need you to take care of it. So he had no choice. He was asking me, he said, okay, where do we pray? Well, you know, we have the church, and everybody gets to use the church for their different religions. He said, that's ridiculous. You want me to run it? We're going to run it my way. He says, I need a big tent. It's broiling hot here. So we need a tent. We need air conditioners. Um, we need, uh, they figured out how many chairs we need. We're going to need a partition down the middle because I separate men and women. And no problem. The Corps of Engineers came in, built him immediately um, his makeshift synagogue. And then it was put out the message that any, any Jews that want to come for the high holiday services, they'll be run and this uh, Shmuel Khan will be in charge. Anyways, he had an assistant. His name was Miller. And uh, at the beginning of services, so he's up front, he's running the services, and the colonel, a, a colonel, very high-ranking position, a colonel comes in with his wife and two daughters, and they sit down all in the same section on the men's section, but this Shmuel Kahan wants an Orthodox service, so men and women have to sit separate. We're not discussing why, that's not for today. Um, so this Shmuel Kahan says uh, to his assistant, go over to the colonel, 
and tell him to please sit in the designated area. The women are in one designated area. The men are in another designated area. So Miller said, oh, come on. He's a colonel. I can't just start up with a colonel. So the lieutenant said, here, I'm in charge. And go tell him. So he goes and tells him. And uh, this Miller is petrified. And the colonel says, why do I have to change my seat? This I always pray with my wife. So Miller goes back to the lieutenant. And the, this lieutenant, Shmuel Khan, says, I'll take care of it. So he goes over, this lieutenant Shmuel Khan goes over to the, um, to the colonel, and he says, I would like to ask the colonel to uh, please sit in the designated area. The men are on this side, the women are on the other side. So the colonel says, may I ask why? And this Shmuel Khan says, because I am in charge, and this is my command. Now, happens to be, it's like a ship. So since he is the highest, he's considered the highest officer, um, so the colonel has to listen to him, so he stands up and says, aye, aye, sir, and they separate. Anyways, after the holidays, so there was a party in the commander's house. So the colonel comes over to the lieutenant, who had, had to be by the party, and they start to talk, and he says, you know, you didn't answer me. I'd like to know now, why did my wife and I have to separate? So the lieutenant said, uh, this Lieutenant Shmuel Khan says, um, you know, you're right, it's true. Um, during the services was not the time to get into a religious debate. I had to run the show, and I appreciate you following uh, protocol. Um, but now, if you'd like, I'll give you the real answer. All of a sudden, the commander comes by. And the commander says to the, lieutenant, to the colonel, he says, Colonel, you're in big trouble. Why? He says, because you're talking religion, you are arguing religion with the rabbi. This lieutenant studied Torah rules. I don't know his rules and regulations. I'm not Jewish. But he's been studying the rules and regulations his whole life. He happens to be a lieutenant in the Navy. You, on the other hand, never studied Torah, and you're asking the expert to explain to you um, why he's doing what he's doing. What exactly are you going to say to him? And that's what we tried to say. But, of course, the music is playing. So we're going to have to end it here. I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. Thank you, of course, to all wonderful sponsor listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you to the production team. We have David and Cisco in the back. I have Let's Turn Food for Thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Tree Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRS Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it. There's a house.